Welcome to the Think Education podcast. Welcome back to, to those of you that have listened to, to previous episodes and you know, first welcome to anybody new. Um, uh, joined, as always, by co-host uh, Judith Lammy. Uh, and it's interesting, actually, for those of you that listened to um, the episode with Nigel Healy, today is seemingly another attempt by Judith to um, use whales as a means to conquer the digital airwaves. Uh, last week, uh, Judith was talking about all, all the best people have worked in Wales, uh, and and I mentioned that I haven't. And so Judith naturally thought, what way to follow that up, but to bring another, not just person uh, from Wales, but another Welsh person indeed. So, um, and we're delighted, absolutely delighted today uh, to be joined by Arlene Griffiths. Um, and Judith will, of course, do the, do the formal interview. But uh, I, I once again plead, um, I don't know, whatever it is, but... Uh, L- lack of quality in my inability to have said I, I've worked in Wales. I've only visited once and that was for a university visit when I was 18 years old and I really don't think that counts. But uh, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm living vicariously through through the Welsh connection uh, that, uh, that is, is before me. So Judith, uh, over to you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much, uh, Chris. And no doubt people listening to the podcast will now be waiting with bated breath over the months to find out when Chris has finally decided that he's going to come uh, to Wales, spend a bit of time. Um, delighted today to have Arlene Griffiths um, uh, with us. And I'm just going to say a few words by way of introduction um, about Eileen, Arlene before um, before we, we start to quiz her <laughs> on uh, all of the uh, wonderful experience that she's had and really rich experience too. Arlene's now retired, although you probably wouldn't know it. She certainly keeps herself um, very busy. Ali's last um, position was running um, AG Consultancy, which she founded because she's passionate about supporting people and organisations to achieve, I think, their very best um, uh, um, and and to help us achieve what we can all look to try and achieve within the sphere of international education in particular that really does uh, make a difference, I think, to... To people's lives. Now, I'm going to embarrass Arlene because she has her, her career now has spanned at least 35 years. But basically, Arlene, we're going to forget the first 15 or 20. Um, but you did start your career in, in, in marketing for the pharmaceutical industry. And at a certain point, it'll be good to have you back to get some reflections, like maybe on, on that and how that shaped, you know, maybe some of your thoughts for your for the second half of your career, really, um, which uh, began probably 20 or more years ago now when you moved into working into um, international higher education, where many of us within this field, of course, will be very familiar uh, with your work. Um, You started uh, at Cardiff University and were the head of the international office there represented Wales and Education UK um, Partnership Board at the British Council. Um, From there, actually, then, you moved from Cardiff University and joined the British Council. And that, I think, might have been one of the first times that that probably I met you, uh, Arlene, when you were working there as director of the Education UK Partnership. And I know then you were working with most universities across the UK, of course, particularly at that time when many of us were engaging in the Education UK exhibitions uh, and conferences that were really important part, you know, of, of our recruitment strategies and, and plans. In, in 2010, Eileen moved from, from that role 
uh, and managed the UK subsidiary of IDP Education. Again, many many of uh, our listeners will be familiar with IDP. And then in 2014, ran um, IDP Education uh, USA, which obviously then gave Arlene a, a great opportunity to work within the, the US market too. On her retirement, um, Arlene was, was the worthy, very worthy recipient, recipient of, of the Pioneers um, Lifetime Impact Award. And I remember seeing that um, on, on the, the screen and a, and a wonderful event it was and a wonderful way to, to, be, to be celebrating, I think, all that Arlene's achieved over the many years, particularly in international higher education. One of the most important things about Arlene, and Chris, of course, has already uh, alluded to this, is that Arlene is a proud Welsh woman. As I've said before, and I will say again, all the best people either come from Wales or work in Wales or have been to Wales recently in the last few years. All I'm just putting it out there. From, from the Rhondda Valley uh, um, originally, and of course, latterly, you know, that's part of her career has, has, has taken her back, back to, to Wales. So, Arlene, you really have ranged around the globe. I mean, literally around the globe, haven't you? From from the States to Australia to the UK to, to Europe. I, I don't think there's any any part of the world that hasn't had Arlene Griffiths uh, in it. Um, so we are delighted that you've joined us today. And maybe I could just... Um, kickstart the, the conversation by asking you, you know, an easy question, let's say, to, to begin with. But given all of your experience within the international space in particular, and you, as I say, you, you, you know, you, you, you've set up the um, head of the British, head of the international office, obviously, at, at Cardiff University too. How would you say that international strategies have changed over the years well, Judith, ironically, the first time I saw you was when I was at Cardiff University and I attended a conference and I attended your session when you were at Birmingham on developing an international strategy. <laughs> Goodness me. Goodness so, me. from the past there, are there is a, There is an irony <laughs> to this. Um, and, and, yeah, strategies in international offices and universities have developed, they're unrecognisable from when I joined over 20 years ago because we didn't have a strategy. There was no targets or objectives. There was minimal understanding of the different dynamics and the, the numbers from, from the different countries. And I can remember asking one day, do we know why international students choose to study here? And the response I got was yes. And the reason are because we're great. <laughs> Fair enough. So I literally I had to focus and put a lot of overtime in just understanding the markets. Because to me, you know, you've you've touched on. Um, that I had a whole different commercial career before I came in to national student recruitment. And it absolutely informed um, sort of my thinking because, I, you know, when I graduated as a, as a chemistry science nerd and joined Glaxo as a marketing trainee, you know, I was in the pharmaceutical industry, which was data rich 
So, you know, my bed and butter was understanding data, understanding trends, developing strategies. So I was really quite shocked. And I was one of the, the, the first, if not the first, person from internet from commercial work to go into international um, education work. So it's unrecognisable now. You know, universities do have have international strategies and they're a very, very key part. And we have a wealth of market intelligence as well. Some of the interpretation, I think we've got to be really careful. I worry about some of the data that I see to this day um, coming from third parties and you know, it's interpreted by people who have no market experience. So I think we've got to be very careful, but there's a wealth of information. I think there's still room for improvement in terms of applying the information that we've got, but certainly we've got strategies, they're well-informed, they have targets, objectives. The whole sector, one of the things I've thoroughly enjoyed seeing is that it's become more professional um, you know, when I started, there was no disrespect, but it was academics had kind of drifted into it. So now we have so many people that have made it their profession. There's more training available. You know, you've just got to look at, at Wheeler, the role Wheeler plays these days. And, you know, 20 years ago, if I had said that international students was a business, people would have screamed at me. But now it's accepted. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, business ethos is better applied now. I am not saying you know, of, of principles and ways I worked in business would be totally inappropriate in this sector. Totally inappropriate. But there is, is that element... Um, and also the sector is is a lot more resourced. So you mentioned that I started off in Cardiff University. When I went there, we had two international officers, one admin support, and one secretary. And that was it. And a week before I started, they had one international officer. <laughs> So, you know, you look at the scale of, of things now, but also one of the other great things that's happened is that in those days, it was focusing purely on student numbers. So, you know, even um, student exchange programs could very often lie outside the responsibility. Now, it's more holistic. It covers you know, a whole breadth of internationalization issues, which, you know, is good because you have to be holistic. So it's absolutely unrecognizable. Can, can I ask you this? Challenges are still the same. Yeah, yeah. I will come back to that in a second. But it, it's really, um, it's really interesting what you say, Arlene, as well, particularly in terms of as you mentioned, you know, the, just the scale of the international operations now that you've got at universities, probably like like you, or, although uh, a few years before that, when I first started at, at, at Birmingham in the in the 90s, 
I remember our international office was one person. He was there with his with his with the secretary, and and the reason why a number of the rest of us, such as myself and and others, started to become more involved in in some international work was because you know Nigel, as it was then, not Nigel Healy, a different one. Um, you know, he couldn't go everywhere and do everything across the entire globe. Of course, he wasn't, and we were actually getting out there and doing things. So you know when academic members of staff were found that had an interest in a certain region or a knowledge about a certain region or was going there for their for their research then often you'd you'd pop along to to, to the international team as was two of them uh, and say I'm going here you know is there anything you want me to do and by the way if you are going to want me to do anything can you pay half my flight sort of thing like you would do uh, any anybody would do certainly in the humanities I was doing a lot of work then probably primarily actually in Japan, um, but in other, other places in the Far East. And so would would go and do things then like the Education UK exhibitions and, and other things like that, because it, it just helped that. And I suppose that slight ramble and think I'm now thinking back to those um, heady days in, in the 90s. But I suppose one good thing about it, and I'd really value your thoughts on this, Arlene, was that there, however, on the one hand, yes, you know, you did have academic members of staff that weren't professionals in that area whatsoever. And sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't, depending on how they worked within that environment. And of course, I think now we've, we've really got, you know, professional marketeers who are going out doing what they need to. But I think one of the real positives, though, was that our professional service members of staff and our academic members of staff work really closely together. And I suppose just started to appreciate and learn some of the some of the challenges that others have, but just so, you know some of the pressures of working in that kind of environment. So I, for example, I think even in a small way in doing some of those activities overseas, you know, on behalf of let's say what would have been an international officer then, um, really learned to appreciate just what what people had to go through in doing those kind of exhibitions not easy by any stretch of the imagination you're on your feet 12 hours and plus more a day you've got to answer all of the questions you can imagine and then some about not only your institution but everything beyond and, and across your entire country and and so that knowledge base that you have to have the stamina you have to have uh, um, to be able to operate in that kind of environment just I suppose i I learned a lot from that, and I'm just wondering whether, in our in our professionalisation of a lot of those areas, whether we've not though driven a slight wedge between our professional service areas and our academic areas. What do you think? Yeah, you see, I, I think that this also links into one of the challenges remaining the same, because yeah, you know, I am not for a moment advocating that there should be a shift away from academics because I actually believe the converse. I think, I think the difference is that it was that the, the involvement of the academics was because of necessity rather than strategically seeing the value of their, not just their skill and knowledge, but also their softer aspects that they bring to the party. So, for example, um, when I was at Cardiff, if I uh, when I um, when I was out there doing it, journalism in Ghana in Ghana 
was a really important subject, an opportunity. So what did I do? I went out and I looked for a Ghanaian academic in journalism school with the right skills. Yeah, so that, that they're mo highly motivated because it's their own country. I, as hard as I try, I will never be a Ghanaian and understand <laughs> the, the cultural differences. Yes, of course, from an academic perspective, mm. you know, and I've, I've, I've focused you know, academically in that, that area at one point, but I'm never going to be Ghanaian. Um, and also it challenges my way of thinking, but I've also got an advocate then. So I, I, I actually believe that there is a really important role for non-international office people, and it can go beyond academics to, to drive. You know, one of the things I started to, to, to talk about um, just before I left Cardiff was engaging with the um, business school there to get them to develop a marketing strategy. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, I, and I still believe this now, there are incredible resources and expertise within universities, some of which we're quite happy to use on a commercial basis externally. Why don't we use them internally? Yeah, that's a really good, really good point, because we still don't often do that, do we? And, and, and actually, going back to your earlier point about now in many ways being, being data rich with what we have, I think also then, you know, there are, that we've, we've got, you know, we've got our data analytics guys across institutions. We've got so many people who could probably take some of that data themselves and shape it and, and communicate it to us, couldn't they? That we don't always make the most of that either, do we, in many ways? No. Like say, we, we often look outwards in terms of what we might be doing for it, but we don't think, how can we, how can we actually work collectively across the institution in many of these areas? And, and you know better than me because you're facing it every day. Universities are very complex organisations. And... If, I can remember having a eureka moment thinking when I realised that, you know, one of the things that is important and drives an individual to go into academia is to have that intellectual exchange. It's about the discussion. It's about the debate. It's not necessarily about the end point, having an action. So therefore, if I'm going to meetings with these people, why on earth would I expect to get an action list at the end of it. Yeah, that's just not going to happen. So, so you know, it's understanding what everyone brings to, to the party. And, you know, in, in my, uh, people who've worked closely with me will be very familiar to me saying in my Walt Disney world, you know, what, what it would be is in terms of a strategy is to co-develop a strategy, an international strategy, with relevant people from the business school and probably psychology as well for the behavioural stuff, right? Have the vice chancellor of research on that working party as well. 
so that we can get the richness of that insight. But having, you know, having that, that business attitude to ground it and make sure that it's operational and can be implemented. But then you have got co-ownership. It's not just co-development, co-ownership. And that potentially takes things to a different level. And it links into your point about it's only when you're living it you start to understand the softer challenges. You know, the the, the example you gave, when you're working overseas, you're working in a totally different time zone, but you've still got your day job to do. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. You can only really appreciate that if you at least have a little bit of that, you know, as, as a as a taster yourself, can't you? And we're often saying to our students, aren't we, about, you know, having tasters of, of experimenting with this and looking at that and reading that and doing that and why don't you go on this mobility, you know, exchange here, etc. But we very often don't do it ourselves. And I suppose as you say though, Arlene, Quite rightly, you know, in 20, 30 years ago, we did it out of necessity because there were there were few of us. And, and I think it, it, it coincided, didn't it, at a time when probably prior to that, certainly with regard to international students, for places like Birmingham and, and Cardiff University, the students were coming to the university. It was only at that point then when, when they were still coming, but I think universities thought, oh, it's they're very good, these students, aren't they? And they're, they're really bringing a cultural richness and to, to the institution. We should maybe have some more of them, maybe from different places. The, 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 I, mean, I mean, I'm sure it was more sophisticated than that, but, you know, it might not have been. Um, but, but we then had to do that, didn't we? But within an absence of, at that time, having like lots of additional resource in there as well. So therefore, you did have people, such as myself and others, that, that started to become involved. But one of the challenges that we still have in involving people outside the the, the direct international office is dependency on their generosity or their personal interest. Because how many yeah. universities identify academics to be involved in international work and put in a measure in their performance yeah. and their responsibility? And, and I think think that's that's a really really you know important part. And, and, and also, you, 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 that point you just made leads into something else that you know I still worry about. Yes, we were riding the wave back, you know, twenty plus years when I I, I was doing it. You know, I I don't for a moment take any credit in the first year for any of those increases in students we it would be ridiculous to do so anyway because you know we know from the research that the decision making is 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 around two years and this is the important importance of 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 the strategy it's actually puts you in a position where you're driving it rather than riding it and and it's that dilemma that people still have even though the international teams are better resourced that, that it's it's that tendency to continue to be pulled on the operational. So you know when you've got vast numbers of students, it takes your eye away sometimes from 
delivering against the strategy and understanding what the important parts are. And that links into the external environment. We cannot control the external environment. That's why it is so important to understand your external environment. And whenever I, no matter what sector I've been in, I've worked in, when I do a strategy, I always start by an analyzing and understanding the external environment because that's the bit I cannot change. Right? What I can take control of is the internal bit, and that includes the product and all the rest of it. I am not for a moment saying that that internal bit is easy. But, you know, whenever I go into an organization, you know, a priority of mine is understanding the touch points, understanding where the power is, understanding what is movable. What is movable is going to take me a lot longer. And what is movable but really isn't going to be worth the effort in getting it moved. And that's all, all re really complicated things. But if we don't do that, it's a vicious circle because, you know, we're going with a wave and the wave keeps hitting us. We can't get away from it. And, and you know, I can remember coming back in um, uh, to Cardiff and in my first, it was clearing. I was the only person to go on and you know, I'd been in Malaysia and... It was just broken down. Everything was broken down. And I had to turn, and I was not head at the time. It was two colleagues. I just turned around to them and said, you're going to have to stop what you're doing because the three of us have to talk. Mm. And, you know, I said, I don't mean to be rude, but I want to help you. And there's other people, because we'd just taken on some new staff whilst I was away. There's other people who are competent that can help you. But you're in a vicious circle, so you've got to stop. Mm. what you're doing and you've got to talk to us so that we can help you uh, it's, I mean it's I had a question when you started talking and then had another one and then had another one and then had another sorry, one sorry, no, no, sorry, so, um, no 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 I mean it's 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 absolutely fascinating and I, I started off thinking about you know the the sort of professionalization within universities you know you would you know in terms of you explaining about um you know academics for academics and, and you know, professional services. And, and the more that people internal capacity was built and the more maybe that roles were sort of slightly more clearly defined and, and therefore, as, as Judith was saying, maybe more separated in the, away from the blurring um, at, at, at the earlier stages. And I started to wonder, is, you know, what, what impact does that have on, on how universities make decisions? Particularly, as you say, you know, it's now so much data driven. That can be blinding. As in, or, or at least misleading in terms of um, what we're chasing or, or what we're measuring against, which is often, you know, against the institution, not necessarily down the road, but next to us in the ranking. Like, you know, there's often a, um, we've had a lot of conversations, Judith and I indeed with guests about, you know, where does the student experience fit with this? And where does the student fit with this? And, and you know, is it about reputation and, and what does that you know all of these sort of you know complex issues as you say sort of um, compounded together and I was going to ask you a question about partnerships and I think I'll leave that for, for a little while I'm I'm really interested in in this last point that you, you, you were making that how is it 
how do you think that this has changed the university's behaviour where you, you have um, almost much more bespoke departments or, or institutions or entities um, that are agenda driven? And, and often that agenda is, is not necessarily in competition with, say, the academic department, but there's going to be a, a, certainly a different way of, of perceiving or, or of comprehending this. I mean, I remember a lot of the time working for, you know, universities where you'd explain the internationalization strategy. You'd say, well, there's all these benefits of coming to the branch campus. And one of the departments on the home campus would say, no, we're never doing that. It's got nothing to do with us. We, like, we're simply, you know, we're not doing that. And you could, you could show all the data and everything that you wanted. And you just get this complete sort of loggerhead. Um, and I was, just, I was just curious. We talked a lot um, with Nigel Healy about how universities are attempting to I, don't, I think harmonize is probably too strong a word, Judith, but at least, you know, some way integrate the internationalization and the sustainability strategies. And yeah. so I'm, I'm really interested in, in, in what you've been talking about in terms of, I love the idea of that working group. And I think those people on that working group, you know, psychology, business, obviously senior research leaders, um, you know, it's a, maybe that is the Disney world, but that it seems like a very, you know, sensible approach to, to, to this. Or, you know, you get somebody like Judith that sort of embodies all of those in one, in one person, then she can, you, you know. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in, in, you know, your perspective on, on how this is shaping. Are we becoming more integrated as institutions? Are we simply becoming more siloed and, and running it, you know, at, I guess, parallel speeds or, or not quite parallel? I'm not quite sure what the analogy would be. I think, I think that's assuming that we're, it's a homogenous... Well, that's a very good point. Today. Yes, yes. <laughs> Because, you know, we've got a tendency to, to, to segment our universities as well as, you know, Red Brick. Yeah, sure. Russell Group and all that. And, you know, maybe there's a different way of, of, of segmenting and looking at it. Because it's all a journey, isn't it? Indeed. Indeed. So where they are on that journey of true internationalisation, true integration, you know, culture... Or, you know, organizational culture comes into this. So I think there, there's enormous differences. I can think of, without giving any names, I can think of some universities that, um, that you know, that, that, that are far more integrated in this, this respect now. But there are others that are totally siloed. I'm, and actually, in real terms, haven't moved on that much in 20 years. So I'll give you an example. As I sit here today, <laughs> I am helping a, a, a friend's son, right? First person in his family to ever go to university. Doing, he's doing physics. He's smart, right? And he had, and one of, the, one of the reasons that he chose the university he's at is because they did a four-year course to get, in, get experience and he could get that experience overseas. Hmm. And to him, overseas, you know, is outside Europe. That university 20 years ago used to use that opportunity as a marketing tool, which they still are. Mm-hmm. Can he get any help internally to, to secure that position? No. So I'm pulling on contacts, not just from, you know, my HE experience, but back in my pharmaceutical days. 
So, you know, how, and that's a home student. Mm-hmm. You know, an employability, I mean, I, I you know, if I, if I really wanted to academically, as an undergraduate, do what I wanted to do, I would have gone to what was then Oxford Polytechnic and I would have studied anthropology. But actually, the reason I was going to university was to get work. And I sat down and thought, what's important to employers? And at that stage, it was a university degree. And I ended up going to university and did chemistry. Mm. Yeah. Because my priority was employability. And that, that still applies now. So, so sorry, Chris, to go back, back, back to your point. It, it, you know, the, there is no set. Some universities are, are, are unrecognisable. Right, and, and, and much better, but others are still really siloed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I wonder if it's it's interesting to see because this this last point you know you're, you're making the the anecdote about your your friend's son. We we all know this. Those of us that have worked in or around the UK sector, we, you know, it's yeah. a standard thing. It's like, well, UK students don't like to travel, and and you know, the focus is bringing you know international students into the UK. I think well. But you know, if there's actually one that does, then how about you know we you know we sort of help that that support. Um, but I suppose, and, and I wonder if, and this is something that Judith and I keep coming back to this this issue of identity, this issue of you know um, underpinned by values, you know, and, and how that affects the mission and, and how an institution perceives of itself, you know, um, within its environment or a product of its environment or, or impacting its environment. And and I know it was a joke, or at least partially a joke. What we, the way we were talking at the beginning where, oh, you know, the internationalization strategy used to be, well, we're great and that's why people come. But I think that's probably true for a given value of true in many places. It's, you know, we are, we are who we are. We don't tend to worry about or we, we don't maybe worry about it in the way that we should. And, and it's sort of that the focus is perhaps less on internationalization and more the, you know, the international student numbers perhaps i'm not i'm not sure i mean it's it's you know it's part and parcel of, of how universities operate is, is how they see themselves right and and clearly there are institutions at the very top of the pile and people go to them irrespective right that's that's yeah and then there are you know yeah yeah but yeah i i, I can remember when i was at the british council you know we, we had a we did a lot of work and we had a lot of discussions about internationalization and again that yeah, that's a journey you know, are we, do we deliver true internationalization? No, I don't, I, no. Yes, no, I don't think we do. I, I really don't. And, you know, there, there are, you know, one of the things I used to do is put up, you know, pictures of different universities and their strap lines and what they're offering. And actually, if you didn't, if you took the university it's, name it's away. It's the same. You, you didn't know yeah, who they yeah, are. Yeah. And, that, and that still applies. Yeah. And I think there's an enormous difference between being aspirational and what we are. Yes, yes. So, you know, um, I, 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 was, I was talking yesterday to a graduate um, from USW in interior design. Yeah, if, if I was going to do a practical you know, that, that has a direct vocational lead, someone 
like USW is brilliant. You know, I, I can remember friends, I, I have a lot of doctor friends, having worked in pharmaceutical industry, I've worked with a lot of medical doctors. And I was working at NAP, and there was one who had just come in from medical practice to, to work at NAP. And he was an Oxbridge graduate. And he actually said to me, he said, if you're going to do medicine, Oxbridge is not the best place to go. Hmm. So it's having that honesty. It's one, it's understanding branding, propositions, product propositioning, and, and having that honesty. But also, it's understanding who your target market is. Yeah. And, you know, to, to me, this is something we can take control of. What, what, one, of the, one of the challenges that I think we, will, we, we, we have and, and we always will have in this sector is that whilst international student numbers, and international student numbers are only a, one part of this, right? whilst they are included in immigration numbers we will always be at the mercy of politics westminster politics right it doesn't matter what party's in right so you know we, we have to recognize that and, and i think there's a whole issue here about why is it always the home office that's causing the issues is it with the politicians? Is it with the senior civil service? I don't know. But obviously the, the, the lobbying that people like Vivian do is, is incredibly important. I think as well, though, as you were saying, um, Arlene, when you were talking about strategies, um, there are things here, a part of that external environment, that you can't really do very much about can you beyond with with regard to that you know i mean i don't know how many times i've either heard said or said myself you know why on earth do we have international students that are part of of of, of these you know government uh, figures and we know they shouldn't be but we know that they are and we know it's a political issue and it's very very rarely going to change isn't it but but and it might but i i can't even i can't really see any party no, I can't. To be honest, you know, so it's one of those things, isn't it? When you're thinking about that external environmental review and any strategy you develop, that you almost have to say, "This is the situation as it is. It might change. That the likelihood of it changing is like five percent." You know, where I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, so and and I, I've been at a conference for the last um, last couple of days, and and so I, I put forward this. Um, a particular idea at one of the sessions which was rounded on immediately and nobody wanted to do it which is always a good sign I think when you say something like this in a session but I did mention I felt quite radically that maybe if we're always giving if we're always measuring the success of international students in terms of the numbers of international students in their totality even we're not even saying students from different countries and from different cultures and going into different programs if we're putting a blanket number on the students that either come to institutions or or come to a country then that's what people are going to target because you, you yeah. it's like teaching to a test isn't it all the talk that we had earlier on 
about employability, about graduate outcomes. I said, if we're going to make, uh, you know, a difference to our international students, then surely something we should be measuring and be responsible for measuring at institutions, if not actually at government level, is how successful are we in not only maybe helping them secure employment in the country that we're in, but when they go back, because many of them want to go back to their own country to get a better job. Yeah. That's why they, they've come in the first place. And that was something that pretty much everybody said, oh, no, we can't do that. That's far too difficult. It's much better just to have a number of enrolments. Anything worthwhile, in my experience, is difficult. Mm -hmm. And actually, I want to put a, a different lens on that because the one thing we can control or take responsibility for is the student experience, right? And employability links in to that student experience. And we should be starting at that level. It's those measures that will drive the student numbers. So we have to measure the student experience, employability, graduate outcomes. Because that's the starting point. And, and again, th th this, is, this is an area where, you know, there's a lot of commercial businesses, I have to say, that are really bad objective setting. All right? And understanding, and this links in to, to point you made earlier, Chris, about all the data, being data rich. It's about understanding the drivers to your business. So the drivers to your international numbers actually start with the student experience, with the employability. It's all those reasons why they choose to study here. And let's be very, very blunt here. UK's losing ground. They're losing ground to Australia. They've lost ground to Australia. America frightens me because there are some really smart cookies that are now playing in this, individuals that are playing in, in this sector. Right? And again, we've got some re really, really good, good, good tools. So, you know, if you, um, yeah, the student experience starts at the very first point of contact. So it's when they inquire. How many people put a lot of effort into that point of inquiry? Most universities are like, oh, this is a hassle. It's funny, I was just thinking, like, you could, sorry to interrupt, I was just thinking, based on what you were saying before, at the very beginning, it's, it's a slight, almost, as you said, rebranding. Instead of saying, you come to us because we're great, it's you come to us because we'll make you great. Right. It's it's about yeah. what we can as an institution we can we can do. I was just so I was just reflecting, Judith, was it Michael who told us he was he made sure that he was the first person they saw um you know when they did the recruitment and the first person they saw on when they got off the plane? Um yeah. Andrew. Andrew. Oh, sorry, of course, Andrew Andrew Disbury. Yeah. yeah, and, and exactly as you say, I mean, yeah. building up that that relationship, building up that, you know, value, right? Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Sorry. Change the language. You also change the language. So, you know, one of the fallouts of being at the mercy of of politics is that, in my view, my humble view, politicians are not good strategicians. All right, because you know, 
talking about making reducing international student numbers is not does not link with the rest of Westminster policy. But they're also ironically really poor communicators. So the language that they use can cause phenomenal fallout. Yeah, lower qualified qualifications, all the rest of it, and can be offensive. But it also drives the conversation to an economic conversation. How does that make an international student feel? And it's uh, yes, of course, it's an important part of of what we get out of studying, but it's only part of it. So if you flip it and look through it in different lens, you start having a different language. And actually, you, you, you have the opportunity to minimise the impact of government policy. Because suddenly, you know, it doesn't matter what's happening politically. I am getting out of this experience what I need to get. And then you have this advocate, all these people saying it's an incredible experience. And, and, you know, it's about understanding the national cultures around it. So, for example, um, we continue to have a problem in the UK, again, because we ride the wave with undergraduates. Right. Nigeria used to be a really important market for undergraduates to come here. And one of the things that worried me, which is why I pushed to get Nigeria, one of the reasons I pushed to get Nigeria as a priority market in British Council, was that um, Nigerians, young Nigerians, were looking to go to America because culturally they felt it was a better fit. Why? Because creative arts, whether it was music, you know, uh, film or whatever, was coming from America. You drill down to it. Excuse me, this is stuff from the UK. <laughs> Going back to the Welsh theme, I was watching a TV series the other day, and um, and and I couldn't believe it. The number of Welsh people, actors that were on it, all with American accents, you know. <laughs> real quality you know like the michael uh, sheens and all the rest of it so it's it's understanding that so, but if if you start at the point of the experience the student experience and and the employability and all that then th th then you change the narrative and you, you you put yourself in a position to, to get birth control and you know there are some really neat tools there's, you know, if you're looking at that inquiry stage when they first hit you, then, you know, um, you, you've got these days the inquiry experience tracker. So there's some, some, some really useful tools, but we have to not just look at the data and say, this is interesting. We have to use it. It is frightening. I've been into a university and I looked at one of their schools and I said, if you make one change, right, which is just every application that you get, assess it. This school would have got just shy of, of a 
of a, of a million pounds extra revenue. The number of times I've been into universities and I've looked at their, their barometer, I graduate barometer, and it's there in terms of the experience, the experience, what they need to do. But as data collecting, you know, well, they're not on shelves these days, but collecting dust. So it's actually using it as well. But I agree with you, Judith, we need to flip it around. We're measuring the wrong things. Yeah, and and we're always going to get those responses, aren't we, if, we're, if, if we carry on doing that. Well, Arlene, it's been wonderful to talk to you today. But if I may, so, so one, one, one final question, and it won't be to do with Wales, but it could be, actually. You could make it to do with Wales. Anyway, one final, one final question. So you've got a time machine. Yeah, <laughs> so you've got a time machine. You get in your time. Well, actually, though, you mean you you've done ke- all these things. I'm learning about you, your chemistry background, and your farming. You could probably have built your own time machine. But moving on, so you've got your own time machine. You get in it. You go back, and you meet yourself. Um, forget about the space time continuum and the world ending and things like that. We'll just park that for a moment. So you meet yourself. You're just about to go in on that first day. You know. 20 odd years ago, you're just going into to, to, to Cardiff um, University. What would you say? What would be that one bit of advice that you would give yourself as you're going into your first day in international higher education? Right. Two things. First of all, I do have a time machine in Wales because this is where Doctor Who is produced. <laughs> they- there you go, Doctor Who's well. She heard it, heard it here first, guys. But the advice that I would give myself, and you have to understand, is that, you know, as they say, you can take the girl out of the valleys, but the valleys, but, but you, can't, you can take the girl out of the valleys, but you can't take the valleys out of the girl. And, you know, I'm 66. I was born into, you know, the Rhonda coal mining community. And, 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 and therefore, as, as a woman... The advice that I give myself is believe in yourself. Because little valley girls don't necessarily think that. Well, that's fantastic, Arlene. <laughs> and I think we should leave it there for all those for all those valley girls out there. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself because then you can you can end up having a kind of work life as Arlene has thus far which has just been fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us today, Eileen. It's pleasure. been an absolute, absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank indeed. you very much for having me. Take care now. Bye.